You're listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. Our prayers that this encourages you in the Lord. Be seated. And uh, Brandon has already welcomed you and thanked you for uh, your attendance this morning. And I just want to thank you for being here on Gulf Coast Sunday. Uh, we have some vacancies. Some of that is because some are still at home and forgot to set their clock forward. Some are not here because instead of sitting in a pew, they're sitting on the sand. Uh, if you're one of those unfortunate ones like me that are not going to be able to afford and go to the beach this week, then if you'll pray for my jealousy, I'll pray for yours, okay? And, uh, and we'll make it. But we are glad you're here. Uh, as has already been told you, today we're going to start a series on the core values of Covenant Church. And the first core value we'll look at will be the Scripture. And so for our text today, I want to direct you to the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 3. And we will begin reading in verses 12 to the end of the chapter. 2 Timothy, chapter 3, beginning with verse 12. God's Word says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, church, Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now notice, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, profitable for reproof, profitable for correction, and profitable for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Would you bow with me for prayer? And as we bow, would you first of all pray for yourself? Would you along with me confess any sin, knowing and trusting that Christ's blood will cleanse us and forgive us? Would you ask God to help you listen this morning to His Word? Would you ask the Holy Spirit to remove from your mind and your heart any distractions, thoughts about what you have to do when the service is over today, thoughts about 
things that are troubling you and bothering you, would you lay them at the feet of Christ this morning? And would you ask God to help you hear Him speak? And finally, would you pray for me? That I would be nothing more, nothing less than just a vessel through which God can speak. So, Father, I pray, I beg of you, Lord, to let the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, not only be acceptable, dear God, in your sight, but, you, but would you please let, it, let them be only that which is for your glory alone. I'm going to ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start our session today by referring to uh, what I call our, really our church handbook. It's called a covenant partner process book. It tells you how you can become a covenant partner and get plugged into covenant church. And on page four, we have a section, the heading of which on the left is, what do we believe? And there's an explanation of that question. It says, below are the basic beliefs that all covenant partners at, at covenant church hold to. And the first belief listed is a belief about the Bible, the Bible. And here's the explanation. The Bible is the inspired Word of God which is the authoritative source for Christian instruction and Christian living. And then on the right-hand side of that page, we have a heading that says core values. And with this explanation, everything we do at Covenant Church is guided by our core values. We strive to weave these into all that we say and do. And the first core value listed is Bible with this explanation. God has spoken in His written Word and continues to speak through it today, calling believers to Himself. And so I think before we begin to unpack our text, I need to spend a little bit of time with some definitions, explaining some definitions. And the first definition is that of core value. What do we mean when we say the Bible is, our, is one of our core values? The core of any organization, the core of any device or system or person is the central or innermost part. The core is the crucial element. My wife has a kitchen utensil. I don't know what the technical name of it is, but I call it a slicer. But it's this device that you can, you can actually set an apple out on a table and you take that device and center it up and push it down and it'll slice that apple. It's really neat, you know. And when you get through, there'll be these nice slices of the Bible, but what, uh, of the apple, but what'll be left in the middle is, is the core. 
And, and you know what you'll find in the core, in the apple core, you'll find apple seeds. Well, the core of Covenant Church and the core of any biblical church is Jesus himself. Jesus is the central and the crucial element of the church. And we find that in, we find that in Scripture. The, the, the term core is not used, but words that indicate the same thing. Like in John 15, 5, Jesus speaks and he says, I am the vine. You're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, listen, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. What Jesus says is just like the apple core has seeds that brings forth the fruit of an apple, he is the core that brings forth the fruit in our lives that make us like him and, and give glory to God. Another term is a term used in Ephesians 2, 19 through 21, where the scripture says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, talking about those who have come to Christ in faith, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Listen, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Jesus is the cornerstone. He is that stone from which all the rest of the building is set and made true and, and fits. Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the core of the church. And then in Ephesians 5.23, we find another term that refers to him as the core. It says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. So Jesus is the head of the church. He, 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 is, he is the core. And so when we, when we look at the core of the church, we find Jesus. And we might say, we might illustrate this way, when we look at Jesus, the seeds that we find are the values that Jesus himself has. And so our core values really should be the values of Christ himself. Then I think I need to take just a, a minute and talk about the term authoritative. What, what do we mean when we say that the scripture is authoritative for Christian life, that the scripture is the authority of the church? Well, when somebody has authority, that person is empowered. They're empowered to enforce laws and guidelines. They're empowered to command obedience. They're empowered to punish disobedience. They're empowered to determine and judge the action of those that are under their authority. So when we say Scripture is authoritative, we're, we we're saying that Scripture is empowered to be the supreme judge. We, we're saying that the, the Bible is, is that which guides our conduct as a church and as followers of Christ. In other words, we're saying, folks, that when, this, when we say the scriptures are authoritative, we're saying the Bible has the last say. So for Covenant Church, it's not the pastor that has the last say. It's not the elders that has the last say. It's not the deacons that have the last say. It's no individual covenant partner member that has the last say. The Word of God must have the last say. And Jesus was this way about the Scripture. The, 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 the Scriptures carried authority in the life and the ministry of Jesus. Why? Because 
He was the focus of Scripture. Jesus was the focal point of all Scripture, His person, His work. In John chapter 5, Jesus is confronting some Jewish religious leaders. And, and those leaders thought that because they had knowledge above the average person of Scripture, that, that, that the knowledge of Scripture is what made them right with God. But Jesus said this in John chapter 5, verse 39. Jesus said, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. They claim to know the Scriptures, but they refuse to trust Jesus. And Jesus said, if you read the Scriptures correctly, all the Scriptures point to me, Christ said. And the Scriptures is our authority for what the true gospel is. You know, that term is thrown out a lot, the gospel. The gospel. Well, what is the gospel? Well, the Scriptures are authority on that. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 through 4. Listen to what the apostle says. For I delivered to you as of first importance, in other words, chief importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, listen, in accordance with the Scripture. So the gospel is the gospel that the Scriptures bear witness to and give and have the authority for. So what about this So what is it about the authority of the Bible? You know, you may be sitting there with Dolan, you know, what's the big deal about that? Why is the authority of Scripture so important? Well, there, there's more than three, but I, I want to focus our attention in our time this morning together on three reasons that I think the Bible's authority is so important. And the first reason is this, because of the Bible's identity, because of the Bible's identity. Now, you know, the Bible has a literary identity. It can be defined in literary terms this way. It's a single volume of 66 books. And these books were penned and recorded by more than 40 authors. And it was written, we know, from archaeology and historical evidence, we know it was written over a period of approximately 1,500 to 1,600 years. And here's the thing. Even though multiple books, multiple authors, a long period of recording, listen to this, it has one theme from beginning to end. And that theme is the history and the story and the plan of God's redemption, redemptive plan for sinners to become His people through the person and work of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. And it's all for God's glory. So that's the central thing. But here's the thing. More importantly, the Bible not only has a literary identity, it has a living identity. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, listen to what the Scripture says about itself. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Folks, the Bible is not like any other book that you can pick up. It's literally alive. It's active, the Scripture says about itself. It's obedient. 
And it's alive because, listen, it's the very Word of the very God Himself. Dr. Keith Matheson says it this way. He says, when we hear Scripture, we hear the very voice of Almighty God. There's no greater authority. Notice what our, our text says in verse 16. It says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Some of you have translations that may say all Scripture is inspired by God. But this is a very critical term in this verse. And I want to spend just a little bit of time talking about what does it mean that Scripture is breathed out by God. A landmark book on the inspiration and authority of the Bible entitled by that very title is by Dr. B.B. Warfield. And he says this. He says, the Greek word in this passage that's translated inspiration is the Greek word theoneustos. Very distinctly, now listen to this, very distinctly does not mean inspired of God. What it says of Scripture is not that it is breathed into by God, but that it is breathed out by God. God breathed, God's breath, the product, the Bible, listen, Dr. Warfield says the Bible is the product of God's very creative breath. Now, I know that's a very academic and a very wordy uh, advice and, and commentary that I've just give you, but it's critical. It's critical. Let me, let me try to explain to you the difference in what some think of inspiration and what the Bible is talking about here. If it was a pretty day outside, the sun was shining, I might go outside after the service, and if I didn't have anywhere to be, I, I, I might sit down out here on the curb somewhere and look at that big tree that's out there in the parking lot. I, I, I like that big tree out there. I'm a, I don't know much about trees, but I'm a fan of big trees, especially ones that have deep roots and have lasted for a long time. And I might go out there and sit on the curb and just, you know, kind of meditate, be mesmerized by that tree. And if I had the ability to write a poem, I might be inspired to write a poem. And I might write a poem about that tree. And that would be inspiration. And some of that inspiration might even be God making me appreciate his creativity. But that's not what the scripture is talking about when it says inspire. What the scripture means is that when these words were penned, when they were written on the scroll, when they were shared from person to person to be preserved for you and I, it doesn't mean that God just dictated and told Paul or told Moses, write this down. It doesn't mean that God did away with their own different, unique personalities. But what it does mean is this, that God was such in charge of His Word and its production that as those men penned and shared that which would end up on the paper and in the Bible you and I have before us this morning, it means that the very words ended up being exactly what God wanted written, His Word. That's what it means when it says all Scripture is breathed out by God. The, 
The simplest way I know to put it, folks, is this. When you pick up this book and read it, when you hear it with your ears, see it with your eyes, you're seeing and you're hearing the very Word of God Himself as if He were sitting in your physical presence. That's what it means when it says all Scripture is breathed out by God. Well, not only is the Bible's authority important because of its identity, it's important because of its impact. Our text tells us the Bible is profitable. Now, we have some business people in this congregation today, and business people know what it means to make a profit. For a business to make a profit, they have to take in more money than what they put out. If they do, it's a profit. If they don't take in as much money as they put out, it's a loss. It's no profit. And a business can't stay healthy. A business can't survive unless it realizes a profit to go out of business. It's profitable. Scripture is profitable. The Bible says all Scripture is profitable. Listen, folks, as followers of Christ, if we don't intake the Word of God, if we don't read it and study it and think about it, we will experience spiritual bankruptcy. The Word of God is necessary for us to follow Christ, for us to live the life of faith. And it's profitable in several ways, our text says. First of all, our text says it's profitable for teaching. Now, some of you may have translations that instead of saying teaching, might say doctrine. Same thing. I like what the New Living Translation says. It says this, to teach us what is true. I like that. Because here's the thing. The teaching that we receive from the Bible, regardless of what matter of life, regardless of what area, what thought, what doctrine is being presented, it's totally reliable truth. Folks, we live in a day, and it's not new to our day. It's been going on ever since Christ was here. We live in a day where, where society and, and our culture as a whole says, there is no real truth. Everything is relative. In other words, what's true for me is not true for you. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says what is true is true for everybody. It's pure, unadulterated truth. It's the only book you can pick up and read and know that it's pure truth. It's reliable. In fact, the Christian faith is really the only faith there is that's totally reasonable and reliable. Why? Because it's based on the truth of God's Word. It's not based on what some man thinks or, uh, or some opinion or philosophy. J. Gresham Machen wrote a book entitled Christianity and Liberalism. He was put out of his seminary because he stood on the Word of God. He had to fight the liberals of his day who didn't believe God's Word was true and had authority. And this is what he said. He said, dependence upon a word of man would be slavish, but dependence upon God's word is life. 
Dark and gloomy, Machen says, would be the world if we were left to our own devices and had, let's like what he calls it, and had no blessed word of God. Listen, folks, the Bible is trustworthy. It's reliable. It's true for every situation and every circumstance you will find yourself in life. But not only is it profitable for teaching, our text tells us it's profitable for reproof. Now, this is a strong Greek term that's translated reproof. And it means to rebuke or to criticize. In the 23rd chapter, to kind of help you understand what the Bible means when it says it's, it's profitable for reproof, in the 23rd chapter of Matthew, we won't turn there, but seven times, seven times in, the, in that chapter, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and the religious leaders with this phrase, Woe to you. He calls them hypocrites, and he calls them blind guides because the practices and the commands they're putting on the people are unbiblical, and Jesus rebukes them for them. And that's what the sense of this word reproof is, is to rebuke. But now listen. Here's the thing about rebuke. When God's Word rebukes us, when it reproves us, convicts us strongly, that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Because when it shows us our error, we can, we can change. We can repent with the help of God. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 5 said this. said, It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Hadn't you rather follow the rebuke of the one who is all wisdom than follow the song of some fool? That's what the scripture means. You know, let me share, let me share a life example with you. Several months ago when we were in our prior building, it was my turn to preach. And I like to try to break the ice a little bit when I first get up here. And so I told this little, made this little what I intended to be a little comical comment, didn't, think, didn't mean any harm by it or didn't think anything about it, but it wasn't the right comments. It wasn't, I didn't think about all the implications of it. And after, this, after the message was over that day, I had two guys who I respect and trust and appreciate, and they came up and they rebuked me. They reproved me. They said, Dolan, don't use that next service. That's not good. And they begin to tell me why. Now, you know, folks, there's two, two ways I could react to that. I could react the default way, which most of us do when somebody rebukes us and bow my chest up. No one's going to tell me what to do. I'm in charge. I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm saying. Or I could do what the Scripture says. I could take that rebuke from somebody that was wise and make a change. You see, folks, when, when folks criticize us, eat, listen, even, even if they do it in a hateful way, this is what I've learned. When somebody criticizes you, don't bow up and get mad. Think about what they said and see if there's any worth or value of what they say. You know, I have found that even when folks criticize me in a harsh way, if I would just back off, settle down and think about it, 
You know, something they had to say was right and it was good. But here's the thing. When the Scripture rebukes you, it's always right. And it's always wise. So why not listen to it? Why not turn from your wrong way? Why not turn from your sin? Why not turn from that bitter attitude? Or whatever it is that it rebukes you for. And obey. Because God's going to work it for you good. And then the Bible says it's profitable for correction. Now that's a softer term than the term reproof. And it has a sense of repairing, restoring, or setting right. I, I like to use this example. You know, um, I'm terrible about directions. Terrible. And if I go to some place new, nowadays with so much traffic, I don't go unless I've got Vicki and her little buddy named Siri on that GPS. And I get upset if Vicki don't have it turned up. Well, I love to hear Siri. I need Siri. And I go down the road, you know, and I don't know where I'm going. And Siri says, hey, when you get this stop sign, take a right and you go a little ways. And the next red light, take a left. I love it. I love it because I'd get lost without it. And that's what, that's, that's what it means to correct. God's Word sets us straight. It keeps us on the narrow way that Jesus talked about. It, it corrects us. Another, another way that you might think about it is like James thinks about it as a mirror. In, his, in, in James chapter 1, 23 and 24, it says this. It says, For if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he's like a, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. In other words, James says, to, to, to hear the Word and not obey it, that's like, like, when I go to a mirror nowadays, folks, now when I was a young man and I looked in the mirror, it was always to make sure the hair I had on my head, I was, I was concerned about the hair on my head, make sure it looked the best it could with what God had to work with. Nowadays, I'm an old man. I still look in the mirror, but it's not the hair on my head I'm concerned about. It's the hair coming out of my ears and other places it's not supposed to. But the concept's the same. I'm looking in that mirror to see if there's some correction that could help, could make. And that's what James says about the Word of God. Look at it. Read it. But don't just look and read it. Do what it says, do. Because otherwise it's done you no good to look into His Word and follow it. And then our text says that the Scripture is profitable for training. The term that's translated training here is the same term that would be used in Jesus' day to refer to the raising of a child. The education and the training of a child, you know. And that's what it referred to, to help that child endure. I've got a three-and-a-half-year-old great-grandson that I spend a lot of time with, and he's at that age where, and I'm the worst of the whole bunch, but everybody's trying to train him. You know, he's got some, he's got some disciplines he ain't got down yet, you know, and he gets in trouble and so forth, and I tend to be a little bit too lax with that. But anyway, you get the, you get the, you get the drift. The Scripture is profitable for training and just like, you know, an athlete, when an athlete trains for a sporting event, why do they train? Why do they, why do they run so much? And why do they lift weights? And, and why do they watch their eating? So, so they will be able to endure when it's time 
for the game to start. That's what Romans 15, 4 says. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. There's our word, training. That, listen, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, listen, we might have hope. Folks, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you can take and claim every promise in the blessed Word of God, as Machen says. And you don't ever, if you're in Christ, you don't ever have to live one second without hope. You can be trained for endurance because this is the Word of God and it's true. And finally, I would say the reason the authority of Scripture is so important is because of its invitation. Its invitation in verse 15. Maybe sitting here today, and you may say, well, what is this term salvation? I hear people talk about, they ask me, say, have I ever been saved? What do you mean have I been saved? What, 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 what do I need to be saved from? Well, listen to what Romans 6.23 says. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Bible invites us to be saved because we need to be saved from God from our sin. That, t that verse says the wages of sin is death. What is sin? Every, every time we think a thought, every time we say a word, every time we take an action that is contrary to God's will, that is against His will, that is, that is foul to Him, it's an offense to His character to who He is. And the Bible says that our sin has a paycheck. It has a consequence. And that consequence is death. That's the bad news of the Bible. And when the Bible talks about death, folks, it's not just talking about physical death. It's talking about spiritual death. When my mom and dad died back in 2002, they physically died. They're no longer physically alive. And I can't go by and see them. I can't go by and see daddy in the afternoon and have coffee with him and talk about what went on during the day and how he's feeling. I can't go hug my mama's neck. Why? Because they feel, and I'm separated. There's a big gap where they're at and where I'm at. And that's what spiritual death is. Because of our sin, God is so holy, he's so perfect, he's so righteous that our sin is an offense to him and he can't, he can't fellowship with us. He can't have a relationship with us when we're in sin. That's the bad news of the Bible. But listen, here's the good news. The verse says that even though the ways of sin is death, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
You see, since God's here and I'm here as a sinner and I couldn't get to Him, what did God do? He came to me, as the song says. He took on flesh. The eternal Son of God became one of us. And as perfectly God and as perfectly man, He lived a perfect life. He was tempted, the Scripture says, in all ways as we are, yet He never sinned. He met the standard of that holy God. And then he did something unimaginable. He allowed himself to be nailed to a Roman cross. And on that cross, he took the punishment that I deserve for my sin. He took the punishment that you deserve for your sin. And he paid the price. He took the wrath of God. And the good news gets even better because it says if we can believe that, and we trust in Christ as our Savior and Lord and open our heart up to Him by faith. The Bible says He gives us eternal life. His blood washes our sin away. And His resurrected life becomes our life. And we can live forever with Him, forever and ever. But the Bible doesn't just invite us to salvation. It invites us to sanctification. Our text says that the man of God may be complete Equipped for every good work. What is sanctification? That's a fancy word that means becoming a saint. It's a lifelong process of following Jesus so that by the help of the Spirit and instruction of the Word, more and more every day as followers of Christ, we can become more like Jesus. Now, how does that happen? John 17, verse 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer before He went for the cross. He prayed for you and I, and this is what He prayed. He said, Father sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You see, folks, the Holy Spirit is the teacher of sanctification, and the Word of God is the textbook for our sanctification. So how do we respond today? How do we respond to the Word of God? I'll give you five ways to respond. Read it. Study it, memorize it, obey it, and most importantly, believe it. And when you do, it's not that it'll give, give you a better grip on the Word of God. It's that the Word of God will have a better grip on you. Let's pray. We'd like to thank you for listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. If you have any questions or would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at www.covchurchtusk.com or you can email info at covchurchtusk.com. God bless.